So this morning we're continuing our series in Matthew, and we're considering the miracle of Jesus walking on the water. And we're going to see the impact that this miracle has on the hearts of the disciples. Because faith is not to be occupied with difficulties or circumstances. Faith is to be occupied with the God who controls all circumstances and with whom all things are possible. And sometimes our struggle to believe and to mistrust and doubt whether God actually does control our difficulties and circumstances, those struggles happen because they're the necessary next step to God building up our weak faith, as we'll see this morning. Well, last week, Scott mentioned that the feeding of the 5,000 is the only miracle that's mentioned in all four of the Gospels, aside from the resurrection. And there's another miracle of the feeding of the 4,000, which appears in Matthew and Luke, but is not in Luke and John. And there is certainly something here in the feeding of the 5,000 that is very important for us to understand, as all four of the Gospel accounts report this one miracle of the feeding of the 5,000. Now, Matthew, Mark, and Luke are called synoptic Gospels because they include many of the same stories and many of the same sequences with identical wording. They are sin, the same optic view. They give the same view of many similar stories. And these stand in contrast to John's gospel, whose content is largely distinct from the others. So the synoptic gospels give us a synopsis of an event. They tell us what all three authors are seeing about the same events, albeit from their own personal angle. And we're going to learn something important about the two miracles from each of the gospel accounts this morning, including John's. We're going to gather from each account something that helps us understand the two miracles, the feeding of the 5,000 and Jesus walking on the water more fully. At the end of Mark's recounting of Jesus walking on the water, the miracle we're looking at today, he makes a curious comment that informs us that the disciples missed something during the feeding of the 5,000. And the miracle of Jesus walking on the water that we're considering today has the intention of reawakening them to what they missed about the feeding of the 5,000. He's going to reawaken their hardened hearts. Mark makes this comment at the end of the miracle of Jesus walking on the water, which we're going to look in more detail. I'm just sort of giving you the menu right now. This is what he says, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid as he's approaching the boat on the water. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased, and they were utterly astounded. And here's the comment, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their heart, singular, all of their hearts seen as one heart, was hardened. And so Mark's use of the language suggests that something was supposed to be sustained in their reasoning power. 
something was a something about that miracle was supposed to be upheld in their minds. But they didn't get what it was. And so the walking on the five on the on the water was going to correct that. So remember from last week, this is how Matthew records the event of the feeding of the 5,000, and we'll see the connection here. He said, when it was evening, his disciples came to him, saying, this is a deserted place, and the hour is already late. Send the multitudes away, that they may go into the villages and buy themselves food, the disciples said. But Jesus said to them, they do not need to go away. You give them something to eat. And they said to him, we have here only five loaves and two fish. And he said, bring them here to me. And then according to Mark, Jesus took the five loaves and the two fish and looking up toward heaven, blessed the food and broke the loaves. And Mark says he kept giving the loaves to the disciples to set before the people. It's an imperfect tense continuous past action, he just kept giving the, the food to the disciples to distribute over and over again. And he also kept dividing up the fish among them all, and everybody ate until they were satisfied. Well, there it is. That's what they missed. He was breaking up the five loaves and dividing the two fish and kept giving it to the disciples to set before the people until everybody ate and they were filled. And just as Jesus kept doling out the bread and the fish over and over again, Mark says that the heart of the disciples was being hardened as that was happening. And that hardness continued on until Jesus comes to them walking on the water in the early part of the morning. So something about the miracle was causing their hearts to be hardened. It's a passive participle. Something outside of themselves was acting on their heart to cause their heart to become insensible to the miracle numb, perceptively dull, uh, dead towards what was happening during the feeding. And the miracle should have been making their heart more faithful, more courageous, more trusting and bold, and reliably certain as to the power that belonged only to Jesus. I think it's strange that the crowd following Jesus seemed to be more in tune with what had happened than the disciples were. And so to me, the reason for the miracle of walking on the water is to cause the disciples to be confronted with their insensibility. You know, where there should have been, wow, he just keeps breaking the same seven loaves over and over again and taking the two fish and dividing the same two fish over and over again. This is a creation miracle. That's something that only God can do. But they missed it. Instead, their heart had become intellectually stupefied 
and morally blind about the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000. Now, if the disciples were just mere novices about divine things, they hadn't taken Miracles 101 in high school yet, and they were simply religious spectators like so many of the people that were following Jesus around, their response wouldn't surprise us. Yeah, they didn't get it. But all 12 of those guys had been enrolled in the school of divine intervention for two years. Their laundry list of observing healings and hearing incredible teaching they witnessed for two years is pretty staggering when you read through the Gospels. This miracle stuff shouldn't have been news to them. So Mark's comment about their hardness of heart seems like a pretty strange and aberrant heart response that the disciples have. And Jesus is about to provide them a miracle that will break their hardened heart. So there's the problem we're trying to come to terms with this morning. How does the miracle of walking on the water remedy this heart problem that Mark says the disciples were suffering from? And I don't mean by remedy that you know, Jesus was trying to figure out how to solve the problem. You know, he wasn't like, what's the best miracle to do here to cure their unbelieving hearts? Hmm. Or what's the best way to get at this, eh, I don't really get Jesus yet attitude? What can I do to scare their ignorance right into full-blown worship? Was what he was doing. So let's continue with Matthew's view of the story after the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000, where we are this morning. Matthew says, immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. So the word really is compelled Jesus compelled them to get into the boat. He forced them to get into the boat. Now, of course, we don't think he did that physically. It's a strong word, though. It's making someone do something that they otherwise didn't want to do. Now, there isn't any explanation as to how Jesus did that. I don't know. I, I keep imagining in my own mind that Jesus might have been compelling them the Obi-Wan Kenobi Star Wars way. You know, where Obi-Wan and Luke drive up to the stormtroopers and the stormtroopers say, let me see your identification. And Obi-Wan waves his hand and he goes, you don't need to see their identification. And the one stormtrooper looks at the other one and he goes, we don't need to see their identification. I'm pretty sure it was something like this, though. Guys, I need you to get into the boat now and go to the other side of the lake. The disciples might have been reluctant to leave Jesus at that time. Maybe they were influenced by the ambition of the crowd to make Jesus king. Maybe they were even arguing with him about him leaving them. 
But they must have been moderately unwilling to leave him for Jesus to compel them to get into the boat. But John tells us in his gospel why he compelled them to get into the boat. In John chapter 6, verse 14, it says, When the people saw the sign that he had done, when the crowd had realized that the feeding was a full-blown, clear, outward, visible miracle indicating Jesus' secret power, they said, this is indeed the prophet who's come into the world. And perceiving then that they were about to come and take Jesus by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. So there clearly was an urgency on Jesus' part to separate the disciples from the crowd. The crowd was planning to seize Jesus by force and make him king that very night, but that wasn't part of his plan. The kingdom he was preaching, the kingdom that he was bringing, was a kingdom unlike what the people of his time were expecting. He was setting up a spiritual kingdom that would extend to the whole earth. It would transcend nations and ethnic boundaries. And we know that the disciples were tempted, at least, to do something like make him king. In fact, even after his resurrection and immediately prior to his ascension in Acts chapter 1, verse 6, his disciples say to him, Lord, is it now that you're going to set up your kingdom? The disciples were waiting for the same kind of thing, an earthly manifestation of his kingdom to be established where he would rule and they would likely rule with him and judge the nations. And so he sends his disciples away, removing their temptation to gather impetus from the multitudes and join in with their plans to try and establish him some sort of earthly kingship. And then Matthew writes... And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up to the mountain by himself to pray. And we don't know what he prayed that particular night. Jesus might have just wanted to be alone. That's what he was trying to do when he went to the other side of the lake. But the response of the crowd must have been kind of troubling. It might have called for a night of prayer to seek wisdom from his Father, and to bring him the needful patience to deal with the clearly hardened hearts of his disciples. He was on the mountain for most of the night, the gospel accounts tell us. He often sought a quiet place away from the crowds to pray. He prayed in the morning, and he prayed in the evening, and sometimes it says he prayed all night. But what better thing to pray for than God's will for the lives of his disciples? Maybe he was praying that the storm that he knew they were going to run into later that night might finally turn their hearts to see who Jesus really was. Maybe he prayed that their heart might be softened enough to be courageous in the midst of a terrifying storm and recognize that he alone has the power to silence the raging seas. Even though Jesus wasn't in their presence. 
Maybe they'd realize that only he could rescue them. And so surely, as we see the whole story in retrospect, he went to intercede for their weak faith to be strengthened. Surely he went to ask that the Father would grant them the kind of faith that he had. A strong faith, an enduring faith, a true trusting faith, a miracle-believing faith, and that he would grant to them the revelation of himself so that they would really know who he was. Mark says in 647, now when evening came, the boat was in the middle of the sea and he was alone on the land. Then he saw them straining at rowing. Okay, it's a huge storm. They're miles away. It's dark. And he saw them struggling for the wind was against them. Mark tells us expressly that Jesus is aware the disciples are struggling against a headwind all through the night. And yet he doesn't do anything until the fourth watch, until sometime between three and six in the morning. This implies Jesus is intentionally leaving his disciples to struggle for quite a while And then we realize what a great setup it was for a hardened heart miracle. What a great opportunity for another miracle of divine intervention. So after rowing for a number of hours, they had hardly rowed for more than three or four miles, barely halfway across. And just so we don't get this too confused in our thinking. There are a couple of Greek words to describe the kind of storms that came up on the Sea of Galilee or the lake. These were really unpleasant storms to be fighting in the middle of the night. These storms were described as turbulent and violent, raging back and forth with dark clouds that just keep bringing downpours of water. The ESV says they were making headway painfully. The New King James says they were straining at rowing. The actual Greek word is they were tortured. They were tormented. This trying to keep up against the storm was torturing them. Matthew implies that the boat was struggling as it was being tossed by the waves many furlongs from shore. Mark sees the disciples as the ones who are struggling. They were clearly harassed and stressed as they were struggling against the headwind. The wind was set against them as if it were some kind of adversary and hostile toward what they were doing. Why did Jesus allow them to struggle for so long? Well, undoubtedly to test their faith, so as to urge them to seek more earnestly the help of God. Isn't that what we should do? It was a lesson to accustom them to endure difficulty. They had no idea what was coming in the future for them. It made the stilling of such a tedious and dangerous storm all the more grateful and welcome to them at last 
when he arrived to rescue them. And the text says, And in the fourth watch of the night he came to them walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It's a ghost! And they cried out in fear. So take a few minutes to think through something about miracles with me. Okay? So now we come to one of Christ's more difficult miracles, walking on the water. I don't suppose you were thinking about it quite like that, though, were you? You know, one miracle being more difficult for him than another. One miracle a bit more trying to pull off than another one. And when you think about it, we can't really say it's any more difficult to overcome the natural molecular attractions of water molecules to suddenly maximize their molecular attractions so that now they suddenly become as hard as granite in order to support Jesus' body weight, which he'd have to do on all the water he's walking on so he doesn't fall into the lake. And of course, it doesn't matter that he's not maximizing the molecular attractions of calm, placid water molecules. No, he's strengthening the molecules of the water that he's walking over in the midst of a raging thunderstorm that is terrorizing a bunch of men stuck in a dinghy in the middle of the lake, in the middle of the night, because their hearts are hardened. If you're tracking with me here, the idea of Jesus struggling with things like miracles should be getting more and more remote in your thinking. Because it's not a whole lot more difficult or impossible to walk on water than it is to start separating and dividing and multiplying those fish and bread molecules to reproduce food. And it's not just reproducing food either, but reproducing just enough food in a moment so that 5,000 people are fed without overdoing the dividing of molecules and accidentally and unintentionally having mountains of dead fish and mountains of bread left over. I mean, it's not as if he was able to pull off the molecular division of the bread and fish, but couldn't turn off the tap in time. Thinking with me about miracles a little bit? See, not being able to turn off the tap in time would be something we'd expect from Will Smith's character in the movie Hancock, where rather than saving the day, Hancock actually causes immeasurable damage because of his uncontrolled power. Hancock was powerful, but he wasn't perfect. There's a spiritual art to divine intervention when you're perfect. 
And we learn in this passage this morning that no situation is beyond God's divine ability to intervene and fix it perfectly. Even when the situation calls for turning the unbelieving hardened hearts of the disciples into hearts that worship him. And when you believe that the Bible accurately represents the person of Jesus, you believe there's nothing he cannot do. There aren't any preliminary mathematical calculations that have to happen first. There's no figuring out how to do this stuff. And since he's the creator and sustainer of the universe, and he is its sovereign king, I'm feeling pretty confident that no miracles are actually more difficult to do than any other miracles. So Mark says then, when they saw him walking on the sea, they supposed it was a phantasma, that's the Greek word, and cried out, for they all saw him and were troubled. And they're thinking, well, it couldn't possibly be Jesus coming to our rescue, walking on the water in the midst of a storm like this and not being violently tossed around like our little dinghy here. That that, that couldn't happen. And not believing that it could possibly be Jesus walking on the water, they assumed that it must have been some immaterial, supernatural being that had become visible, that's what the Greek word phantasma means, we know that they were really shaken up. Because now it's to the point of imagining that there was a messenger of death there to remind them that the end was only moments away. One commentator said this, They, as yet not free from the popular superstitions of their countrymen, thought that it was a spirit, or better, a phantom or an apparition, taking the familiar form, perhaps to lure them to their destruction, or as a sign that some sudden setback had deprived them of that beloved presence. And therefore, in their vague terror, they were troubled and cried out for fear. But it says in the text, immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. And Jesus commands them, be courageous. Be assured, be confident, it's me, I'm walking on the water, don't be afraid. They're as troubled by the sight of what they think is an apparition as they are about the raging storm. But as they hear his voice, and they're sort of brought face to face with the reality of his majesty and miraculous presence and power, he graciously assures them there's no need to be afraid. If only we could live in that kind of trusting relationship with Jesus, our Savior, in the midst of our raging storms. 
And in a moment, it seems they were suddenly confronted with the whole mystery that they missed at the feeding of the 5,000. They just needed another incomprehensible glimpse of his divine power and authority to begin softening their heart. And when they understood what he was accomplishing in coming to them in the midst of this raging storm, Mark writes, and they were thrown out of their minds and virtually put out of their senses. And you, begin, you can begin to see the hardened shell around their hearts melting away. How easily their understanding of Christ was corrupted. It makes me want to pray for myself and all of you. Father, always be removing the blindness from our eyes that keeps us from boldly and confidently believing in Jesus. You know what the lesson is here for us? God wants us to be bold and confident in our faith. Courageous in the midst of struggles and trials. Confident in Jesus' divine love and in his care for us. And when we are confident in our faith, we should expect God to find a way to strengthen that weak faith. And when we live in that boldness as to who Jesus is, we should expect great things from God. And because we can expect great things from God, we should attempt great things for God. John 14, 12 says, Most assuredly I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also. And greater works than these he will do because I go to my Father. And Jesus going to the Father is what brings us the indwelling Holy Spirit to do the works in and through us that Jesus does. And Peter answered him, Lord, since it's you, command me to come to you on the water. And he said, come. So, wait a second. Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. What? But when he saw the wind, he was afraid and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. And Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, Oh, you, Peter of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. And those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. Wait. Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water to Jesus. That's a miracle of faith and trust in Jesus even if only for a moment. This is remarkably characteristic of Peter too, though, isn't it? He's really eager, but he's not completely reliable. 
He's daring, but he's kind of unsure and still afraid a little bit. He's wanting to be extraordinarily faithful, but he's not steadfast. Jesus doesn't say, well, Peter, that was kind of disappointing, but it is pretty windy out here. He says to Peter, oh, little faith, why did you doubt? He gives him a new name, Oligopistos, little faith. What amazing expectations Jesus has for our faithfulness. It wasn't the wind, though, was it? It was his lack of faith that made him start to sink. As if we should think if his faith hadn't been so weak, he would have stood up easily against the wind. And notice, Jesus doesn't even command the raging storm to stop. It says, when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. As if it instantly sort of grew tired and weary of its violent raging. Did his disciples begin to see what their hardened hearts had gotten them? What's the benefit of having a hardened heart towards Jesus? Do you see what a hardened heart does? It, it had reduced them to sheer unbelief in the power and the supremacy and the sovereignty and the wonder of the Lord Jesus. And Jesus brings them through their unbelief to the point where they were compelled to say outright, you are truly the Son of God. Had they understood all of the divine creative energy which the miracle of the loaves involved, nothing afterwards, not even walking on the waves in the middle of a raging storm or the quieting of the storm afterwards would have seemed startling to them. And so I would suggest that the level of our fear is going to be greatly reduced the more we actually live in the truth and in the reality that God is sovereign in this world. He is in control of everything. This miracle teaches us this morning to live in the truth that all things are subservient to the controlling will and purposes of the Most High God. Aren't the Lord's ways with us so endlessly interesting? He could, of course, have simply calmed the seas for his disciples while he stood on the mountain far, far away from them. But he wanted them to see him delivering them. He wanted to strengthen their faith in him. He wanted them to know that in trusting him, they were trusting in no one less than the living God, the maker of heaven and earth. Folks, to live by faith in Jesus Christ is an exciting and wonderful thing. And so be prepared for him to fill your life with what reveals and tests and strengthens your faith. And you know, while we're at it, don't miss the miracles around you. 
You realize that we are calmly living on this planet as it spins around on its axis at the equator at 1,037 miles an hour. And it propels through space in its orbit around the sun at a speed of 67,000 miles per hour. And everything is fine. We're not losing our balance. That makes me think how little my troubles and afflictions really are and how small they must be to the Lord, yet with what tender compassion he stoops from guiding the world in their courses to support and comfort the hardened hearts of those who are afraid. Folks, don't ever give up in despair while we have such a God to trust in. If there's a great mountain of sorrow or difficulty in your way, don't let that cloud of darkness, of its shadow, cause you to lose faith. Our God can either make a way for you through the darkness, or he can guide you around the darkness, or just as easily he can carry you right over it. There's nothing too hard for him. So expect him to make the crooked things straight and to bring the high things low. Because sometimes the struggle to believe and in our mistrusting and our doubting and our questioning, those things happen because they're the next necessary step to God building up our weak faith. Well, we're going to celebrate communion this morning. And in that celebration, I want you to be reminded from this passage that Jesus is the king of the bread. He's the king of the storm. He's the king of this earth, and he's the king who conquers the fears in the hearts of the hard-hearted. Charles Spurgeon said, Permit me to say that there is nothing in the Bible to make any man fear who puts his trust in Jesus. There's nothing in the Bible to make you fear. There's nothing in heaven. There's nothing on earth. There's nothing in hell that needs to make you fear those who trust in Jesus. And Jesus said, fear not ye. You don't need to fear the past because it's been forgiven. In the present, you need not fear because it's being provided for you. And the future is secured in its promises by the living power of Jesus. Jesus. 